0: Father, we thank you for for inviting us to to gather here so that we could connect with community, so we could sing your praise, so we could give offerings to to worship you, and so we could hear from you. Uh, Father, so often we hear words from the Bible and they don't soften us, they don't make us more like you, but instead they harden us and they make us numb to you. Uh, So we pray that that wouldn't happen today. We pray that today you would soften us with your word, you'd help us to turn from sin in light of it delight us with your grace this morning. And we pray as we open your word, we, we wouldn't just be like people who look at ourselves in a mirror and then walk away, but that we would be changed by the experience today. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us for the last bunch of weeks, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed, which is an ancient statement of faith that Christians for all time have believed, or at least things that you can't reject and still call yourself a Christian. And so far as we've walked through, the creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead and on the third day rose again. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And then the line that we'll look at today is the next line where it says, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. The last words of the Bible, the last couple of verses in the book of Revelation are these. This is Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. For 2,000 years, Christians have been expecting that history will culminate with the literal bodily return of Jesus to earth. And this is absolutely central to the way we think about where history is headed, how we think about our future, and how we live. We live with this specific day in mind, a day when Jesus will return as judge. And if we believe this, it should do a couple things for us. It should give us hope, but it should also give us a certain sobriety. It should give us hope because we believe that God is not done with the world. We believe that as amazing as the works of Jesus were when when he walked among us, he's once again going to come into this world to finish the work that he started and, and make all things new. So we have all kinds of hope that he's not done. He hasn't gone away. He hasn't abandoned us. He will return. He's still working out his plan for history. And then on top of that, we have a certain sobriety because we know that one day we will give an account to him. Christians believe that Jesus who reigns in heaven now will one day return to judge the living and the dead. And now Christians don't agree on some of the details of how that'll all play out. Christians disagree about about how history will unfold between now and then. Some of the texts about the end times are difficult to interpret. And so Christians disagree on whether things will get better or things will get worse before he returns. They disagree on things like the nature of the millennial reign that that Revelation talks about. So we don't all, as Christians, have exactly the same ideas of what all the end times will be like. But when the church throughout the world got together to put all that they agreed on about the end times into words, they agreed on this statement that from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is what New Testament authors said that Christians were expecting again and again. Uh, when Paul charges young Timothy to preach the word, he says this in 2 Timothy 4.1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In Acts 17, verse 30, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Christians believe that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Whatever else we believe the future might hold, no Christian denies that Jesus will return and that Jesus will judge. And one of the the errors that had to be corrected by New Testament authors and has had to be corrected for the last 2,000 years is the error called preterism, which is the idea that Jesus has already returned. Jesus actually warned in the Gospel of Matthew that there would be people who said this. In Matthew 24, verse 26, he says So, if they tell you, there he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or he is here in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, there have always been people who have said that Jesus has already returned, but that most people missed him. And this, this belief, preterism, says that all of the end times type passages, all of the apocalyptic passages in the Bible were already fulfilled. Um, a lot of them would say that those things were all filled in, fulfilled in 70 AD, that the return of Jesus is already in our past. And now, most Christians agree that, that a lot of those apocalyptic passages were fulfilled in our past. But there are a lot of things that Jesus talked about that were fulfilled in 70 AD. I think most Christians, that I know at least, believe that there has been some fulfillment. Things that were future for some biblical authors are now past for us. And so some things do fit into that category. But the final full return of Jesus is in the future. You can be a a partial preterist who believes some things were fulfilled, but if you're a full preterist and you believe Jesus has already come back, then you're actually denying this line in the Apostles' Creed and something that all Christians have affirmed, that Jesus will be coming in our future to judge the living and the dead. Now, often these, these preterist teachings emerge when a teacher comes and he sets a date for the return of Christ. And he says, you know, I I figured it out. I kind of cracked the code in the Bible. I know what day Jesus is coming back. And and that actually works really well for your business model for ministry before that day comes. Um, People start giving. People are energized. People contribute to that. But then the day comes, and that's a bad day. Um, If you're not ready to retire yet, if you didn't plan really well as far as, like, setting that date, it should have been, like, after you died or something. But if you set that date too early, now you have to come back and save face, and so, so often those teachers will come back and say, well, here's what happened. He did come back. He just came back in a way that we didn't expect at all, and we all missed it. He came back spiritually. He came back in our hearts. He came back with a certain judgment, and then there's still more coming back to do in the future. They, they look for some way to say, oh, no, I was right about my prediction, and preterism seems like a convenient way to do that, to say he did come back. It was just different than we all thought. But there are way too many promises of what will happen in his coming for us to ever believe that it already happened. We Listen to this. This is First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord." So that definitely didn't happen yet. We would have known if that happened. And so, so we see in the future, the future coming of Jesus as judge. As we look out over what the future might hold and the whole mountain range of future events, the high peak that stands up above all the other events is the judgment of the living and the dead by Jesus Christ. That's where things are headed. And what we believe about the future very much affects the way that we live in the present. We were all made by God to be headed towards something, to kind of have some sense for where we're going, to be walking towards something, and to believe that this day is in our futures will affect the way that we live today. And if it doesn't, it's because we don't really believe it. Everybody has some idea of what the future will be. Theologian Herman Boving said that if we don't believe that we're headed toward judgment, where Christ comes and changes everything, we'll be given either to illusions of utopia or to despair. So there are all kinds of ways that people have like this utopian future in their minds. There can be like the Marxist utopian dreams where we have this idea that sin and struggle vanishes and everybody kind of lives a carefree life of contentment in the future. Or as Christians, we can have like pseudo-Christian utopian dreams where we expect near perfection here on earth before Jesus returns. And if we do, we always end up disillusioned. I think in some ways this is where a lot of frustration with the church can come from because the church never delivers the perfect utopia. And I think sometimes our churches make the problem worse because we always spin things and we basically say, our church is amazing and can solve all your problems. And people are excited at first and then they get close to people and they see that there are still sins, there are still problems. And it seems like we never set things right like we expected them to. You run into very real sins and very real problems, and you're shocked because this was supposed to be the perfect community. So, this idea of having a utopia in in our future, it's not just for people who are in cults or people who form communes. We can, in the church, expect that what's promised in the future when Jesus returns to make all things new, we can expect that now, and that'll always leave us disillusioned. But Jesus hasn't come back yet, that's still future. So we might think that we're headed towards some utopia before Christ comes back, which will wreck us, or we might just give in to despair, which if there is no God, really this is the alternative that makes sense, because regardless of how much progress we make here, it can't last forever. The sun will not last forever. The world is slowing down and it's spinning about one second every 600,000 years, so it eventually stops and life is gone. If all we have is to look at nature or to look through our telescopes, we can look at all this and say that eventually all human progress, everything we've done, everything we've done will eventually be worth nothing and it'll all be completely gone. So we can either be disillusioned and disappointed because that utopian future never pans out or we can be despairing because of where all things seem to be headed. But we believe that Jesus is coming. We don't believe he's already returned. We're not at the port yet. We still will be sailing through storms, so we don't have to be disillusioned when it's not utopia yet here because it's not supposed to be yet. And also Christians are not naturalists. We believe that there's a reality that's beyond the reality that we can perceive with our senses and our telescopes. And though what we see through our telescopes might tell us that this will all culminate with a total collapse or the heat death of the universe, What we see with the eyes of faith in Scripture is that we're headed toward a future where Jesus breaks back in and he comes as the judge. So we don't despair. And we know that some progress toward a better world may be made here. Great civilizations will be built and then they'll collapse. Given enough time, there can be remarkable improvements that are made, and Christians should be the ones who are making them for sure. But things might fall apart, even with our best efforts. And so we don't know how much improvement our efforts will bring, but regardless, we know that one day in our future, we'll be meeting Jesus at that throne. And then we should be soberly living like people who will give an account of how we live. Romans fourteen twelve says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So all of us, without any distinction at all, will appear before the judgment seat of God. We'll be there. And this is a sure thing. There are a lot of unsure things in our future, but it's wise to live like the sure things are sure things and the really important things. And it's wise to live like less sure things are less important. So for example, I think it's good and wise to save for retirement. I do that. I think, I think it's a humble thing to do. It's recognizing that you won't always be able to work at the same level that you work at now. And, and also it's wise because probably if you invest over time, that will grow. And so I do that and would recommend that someone who's able to do that can do that. But it's not like my retirement's definitely going to happen. I may not live that long. Those investments may not grow. And so if I can't save or invest, even though I try, it isn't the worst thing. Retirement isn't definitely in my future. And even if it is, it doesn't last that long in light of eternity. But I will definitely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if I live like the most important thing is to save for retirement, but I don't give any thought to that judgment, I'm not living in light of reality. Same for, for how we raise our kids. That Your kids probably will not be Division One athletes. They almost certainly won't play pro ball, and and kids playing sports is a good thing. There are opportunities to learn discipline, to share the gospel, to work hard. There's a lot of good that comes of it, but in their future, they probably won't be pro athletes, but they will definitely stand before the judgment seat of Jesus. That's a sure thing. So as parents, as we prioritize the main things in our lives, prioritizing the things that prepare them for that day makes sense. We're raising kids to stand before the judgment throne. And rather than have them do well on the field or even in the classroom, as important as those things are, it's more important that they do well when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it's a sure day. It's a a day that's sure to come for all of us. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11, because there John paints a picture of, of what that sure to come day in the future will look like, of this place that we will be. And he says this, starting in verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So there's coming this day when the dead stand before Christ. Now one question that comes up is, is, will Christians be there? Will Christians stand before Christ in judgment? Well, in this passage, it says that there are some whose names are not found written in the book of life, which comes with the assumption that there are some there whose names are found written in the book of life. So this seems like this is a, a universal judgment. It seems to be painting a picture of us all standing before Christ and that even Christians give an account. And John describes it as the opening of books in verse 12. And those books have an account of what we have done. And now, this is a pretty unpleasant thought. That we'll stand before Jesus as judge and he won't be fooled. He's got those eyes that can see everything. We won't get away with anything. All of our words, all of our secrets, all of the good deeds done with bad motives will be revealed and judged. Ecclesiastes 12:13 and 14 says, "The end of the matter, all has been heard; fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil." So deeds will be judged, secrets revealed, nothing remains hidden. You say that, and you think, okay, but I thought we were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And the Bible teaches that. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Titus 3, 5, and 6. They say that we are not saved by our works. So what's up with being judged by our works? Like, if we're not saved by our works, why are our works even coming up? Well, in a courtroom, there's evidence brought forward. If it's a murder trial, they're going to bring the weapon, they're going to bring some blood samples, they'll bring DNA evidence, and the evidence proves the murder. And I think it's similar in this in the judgment passages of scripture that the works don't save us, but they are the evidence that we had saving faith. That saving faith has to do something in our lives. It has to make some kind of difference in our lives. And and one of the things I hope that this Apostles' Creed series has driven home is that we need to get away from the notion that we can have a spiritual-only faith that we still call the Christian faith. Because to be a Christian is not just to, like, hold to some nice sentiments about a sky fairy who encourages us. To be a Christian is to believe in some real things, It's to believe in a real God who really made heaven and earth. It's to really believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who was really born of a virgin. Really, in a historic place on a specific date. Who then went on to suffer under Pontius Pilate, a real historic ruler. He was really in his body crucified. It it didn't just look like he died, he really died. He was put in a real grave where he descended to the dead, and then he really physically in his body rose... He ascended into heaven, and then one day he's going to physically, bodily return to us. We believe these realities. We, we believe that they make a big difference in the world. And likewise, we can't claim to have faith in Jesus and have no regard for obedience whatsoever as if we can just have this faith in Jesus and check a spiritual box, but then have it not make any impact in the world. We, we should live with, with reality, spiritual and physical reality, connected. I mean, Jesus said this in Luke 6, verse 43. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So faith produces things in us. It changes us. It causes us to live differently, and if it doesn't, it means that we don't have it. So that's why our our works will be considered in judgment. They are the evidence of faith. Now, if that's all we said about that, we'd probably still be nothing but discouraged because who can stand? The evidence is mixed. We have some works that show that there's real faith, but also our best works are tainted by bad motives. We have all kinds of sins and failures. And so, if the judgment scene here is God's going to put my good works on one side of the scale, my bad works on the other side of the scale, we'll see how this goes. And if the good works outweigh the bad, then I get to go to heaven. That's a bad day for me. It's going to be terrifying. There'll be no assurance whatsoever, and it's probably not going to end well. But notice in in this Revelation passage how that judgment worked. The books are opened. The dead are judged out of the things that are written in the books. But there's another book opened. It's called the Book of Life. And it seems like in that book, there are no works listed. They're just names. And the way that we make it through that judgment of our works and not get thrown into the lake of fire is not by having perfect works. It's by having our names written in the book of life. That book lists the names of those who have trusted Christ so that their sins will be revealed and disclosed on that day, but they'll be revealed as forgiven sins. Now, honestly, I don't know exactly, specifically, how that day goes. I don't know all the courtroom proceedings. I don't know like the order of operations. I don't know like exactly how the drama unfolds, um, but there are a bunch of passages in the Bible that talk about that and give us some sense of how that judgment will, will, will unfold. First uh, Corinthians 3, starting verse 12, it says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it seems like even for, for us as Christians, this Judgment Day will be a day for, for trembling. But it will be a day for being saved. Even as through a fire. So it seems like our our works, we should think about the works that we do in this life with that day in mind. But if we've trusted in Christ, if we've really believed in him, then our names are written in that book of life. And though we stand before the judgment throne, we don't ultimately come under judgment. This is how it said in John 5, verse 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. The book of Romans also tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So while we don't know how the drama unfolds, and really sometimes I think we take a lot of guesses for like what that courtroom scene will look like, and then we'll take that as like absolute fact, and we have to be careful of doing that. It it seems like something like this unfolds. The books are opened. Our secrets are disclosed. We look into the eyes of God as we're judged. The pile of evidence doesn't appear to be in our favor. Our fingerprints are all over the crime scene. But then our advocate Jesus steps forward. And pointing at the sins, he says, I'm taking the blame for that. I paid for that. I died for that. Yes, those sins deserve punishment, but I took that punishment on the cross. And for all those whose names are written in the book of life, that's the reality. Then the evil deeds burn up, and what's left is the good works done in faith, and we're ultimately saved if we had Jesus as our advocate. So we know that we're supposed to tremble at the thought of our judgment. We know that God calls us to repent in light of it. And we also know that if we don't repent in light of his coming judgment, then we don't believe and our names are not written in that book of life. Then this just works on a scale, an impending judgment. So that's the, the, the picture in, in kind of some vague terms of, of this judgment that we're headed toward. That one day we will be there. And, and this should cause us to repent and turn to Jesus and embrace Jesus. But what if it causes us to recoil? Because honestly, we, we read this passage in Revelation and we think, is this a good God, a God who would punish sins like that? Do I want to believe in a God who's to be feared? Well, let me present some of the ways that this is, we can even receive it as good now. And for one, it gives us some hope that there is true justice. As scary as all this sounds, and as much as we think Christianity would be better if we just phased out this idea of judgment and hell, this is an important part of our faith. And there are some important comforts in it. And for one, knowing that God will come to sort things out can free us from feeling like we have to. And I want to be careful. This is not a call for inaction. We don't want to hear, well, God's going to take care of justice, so I don't need to take care of any justice. I don't need to care for victims. I don't need to comfort people who have been wronged by others. I don't need to do any of that because God's going to come back and, and bring real justice. That, that's not at all what's called for here. But particularly when we are living out our calling to comfort victims, to seek justice, it can be a frustrating process because human evil is really dark. It's really dirty. It's really frustrating. I know just in the last couple of years, there have been a couple of unspeakably awful situations that that we've walked through where we've had to just confront this this human evil like I've never seen, just the worst evil, so cruel, so gross, so deceptive, so damaging, and it's so bad that just encountering it can mess with your head. And if you get into a situation like that where you're working against human evil, you feel how bad and persistent and sometimes even like seemingly triumphant evil is. But our hope is that Jesus is going to come back and set things right. The justice so often seems to miscarry. We feel like we're making so little progress. So much happens where people get no consequences. People get away with so much. Even if they get a guilty verdict in court, it's very imperfect justice. Victims get nightmares for years, and he gets a year in jail. They experience that injustice and loss, and, and he gets a slap on the wrist, or even no punishment at all. We want better justice. Lastly, some of the damage that's done by injustices in the world is that those who are mistreated, or abused, or cheated, or wrongly accused— those who are on the receiving end of injustice or those who stand with them can become incredibly bitter because it just seems like justice doesn't get done. There's no justice for you. There's no justice for someone you love. And that sense can wreck you. But knowing God is judged can be a comfort. It's a comfort to know that human justice isn't the final word, that God will come and give exact retribution and nobody will ever get away with anything in the end. We need this hope. Like, we need this hope if we've been wronged or if we're going to help people who've been wronged so that we don't get consumed by all of the, the miscarriages of justice ourselves. It's a real battle to have joy in this life, and joy gets leached away when we're consumed with all of the unfairness, the injustice in the world, but this doctrine tells us things will be set right. Paul actually uses the knowledge of the coming vengeance of God as the grounds for us to not have to feel like we have to get justice or vengeance. Romans 12, verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So one of the ways that we're not overcome by evil is by not trying to get our own vengeance. And the only way we could ever make peace without trying to get our own vengeance is knowing that God will do that better than I could. So there is a comfort in this. And another reason that the justice of God is a good thing is that all gods have wrath, but only in Jesus is there mercy. Every god is a judge. And it doesn't have to be like a a personal god or even a religious god that you worship, but anything that you make ultimate will end up judging you. So if you take, for example, the, the success of your kids and you make that the ultimate thing, that standard will be a fierce judge when your kids fail. If you make your own perfect moral reputation ultimate, when you inevitably fall short, that standard will judge you when you're exposed as less than you've made yourself out to be. If you make beauty your ultimate and you give your life to maintaining it, eventually that God will judge you as you age and you can't keep up. Every God substitute, every idol only enslaves and demands more from us. Every God out there has has wrath when we don't perform, when we can't keep up, when we don't give enough. And yeah, God, God is a judge. He sets a perfect standard for perfection. He says, Be holy as I am holy. He sets the bar really high. But with God, there's the potential for tremendous mercy. That He sent His Son to die to pay for our sins and our failures. He was buried and he rose again so that if we receive that gift by faith, not through our works, but just believing, trusting in him, repenting from those other gods and the other things that were driving us, and we turn to receive that, we receive mercy from him. Every god's got wrath. But God sent his son to die so we could be redeemed, so we could have an advocate in that courtroom, so our sins could be paid for, so that we could be declared righteous. Another reason that knowing that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead is good for us is so we have a healthy fear of the Lord. Because that's what we should have. It's a life-giving fear, and it can liberate us from all of the other fears that ruin us. You know, All of us will have fears that, that revolve around the things that are most important to us. We fear sickness and death because this life is the most important to us. We fear failure because success is the most important thing to us. We fear financial loss because self-sufficiency is so important. We fear the government because our rights and our freedoms are so important. And those are all good things. Health, wealth, freedom, those are all good things and good gifts. But they're not ultimate. In the last couple of years, we lived like those things were ultimate. Or at least the ultimacy of those things in our lives got exposed. You see all the ways that we responded with fear. Fear. We responded with fear of, of the virus because we must stay healthy, with fear of the government because we must stay free, with fear for our money because we must stay financially well off. And all those fears that came from putting those good things in the place of God in our lives have ripped us apart. But if we fear displeasing God the most, those other fears become smaller. Yeah, it's good to try to stay healthy, but the sting of death has been removed. It's good to work, to to try to work hard to provide for our families. But Jesus said that a man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Don't fear losses in this life. Fear the losses in the next. Yeah, freedom is is good and a tremendous blessing. We have been made free by Christ. We can't lose that. We don't need to panic. And a healthy fear of having to answer to God on that day puts all of the other fears in order. So we live like Jesus is the one who's coming to to judge the living and the dead. And this should cause us to live lives of just sober reflection. This is one of the reasons for the Lord's Supper that we'll be taking in a minute. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So the Lord gave us this supper to proclaim his death until he comes, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to remind ourselves that we approach God because of what Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross and spilling his blood, that that's how we gain access with with our Father. But then he gives this warning in verse 27. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So he says that, that this supper is an observance to proclaim the gospel, to remind ourselves of the most important truth of how we approach God, but this supper also exists to remind ourselves to make sure that we are worthy. So, what does it mean to be worthy? Well, the same kind of things that it means to be worthy on that judgment day. Certainly, we should examine our works. When we take the supper, we should be asking ourselves, How am I living? How will my works hold up on Judgment Day? But it's also important to realize that the supper was not given to non-sinful people. Jesus gave it to his disciples. He gave it to people like us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The supper is a reminder that Jesus' body was torn for sinners and his blood was spilled for sinners. It's not there to tell us that we're okay if our works are okay. It's there to tell us that we're okay and we can approach God because of what Jesus did. So it's an important reminder of how we approach God. We approach by faith. We approach through our advocate. We approach through the one whose body was torn and whose blood was spilled. But while this supper is for sinners like us, it's not for unrepentant sinners. It's not for those who don't believe in Christ and have him as as our advocate. And it's also not for those who are clinging to our sin like it's okay. Okay like it won't be judged. To eat the supper without confessing and renouncing our sin is to eat in an unworthy manner. And so Christians, we should take this supper today. And we take it trembling, we take it confessing all of our sins, we take it clinging afresh to Jesus, we take it in confidence knowing that that this supper is offered to point us to Christ who was offered for sinners like us, But we there's way too much trembling around it for us to take this supper without confessing and renouncing our sins. The Lord said to take it in a worthy manner. And worthy is not that we've been perfect this week. Worthy is that we've confessed our sins and he's been faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so in a few minutes as we sing, we'll be inviting um, those who are Christians here who've confessed your known sins to take this supper. And we should take it with a lot of joy We should take with a lot of celebration that we can approach God because of what Jesus has done. But also we should take it soberly, judging ourselves, knowing that God does care about how we live, confessing our known sins, and coming to him trusting only in his grace, not in any of the other coverings that we'll make for our sins, like ignoring them, not paying attention to them, or living like they're not a big deal. So let's take a minute now to to confess our sins in silence. And then I'll close and we'll continue to worship as we take the supper. Father, you have given us these warnings in Scripture so that we would fear you. Uh, But not so that we'd run away in fear, but so we would run to the Savior in our fear. But we confess that so often we're cavalier with our sin, we're at peace with it, as if there's no account for us to give for it. So forgive us for that. And Jesus, we thank you for being our advocate. Jesus, we thank you that you perfectly lived and yet you still endured that judgment day for us on the cross. Thank you that you were condemned so that though we give an account, there will be no condemnation left for us. And as we take this supper, we pray that you would remind our hearts of this. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do your work of allowing us to take these warnings to heart. allowing us to tremble, but not tremble in fear that sends us running from you. Tremble in fear that sends us running to you. Confessing, trusting and rejoicing again in the gospel that this supper preaches. So as we come to you today, as we come to, to take this supper and show the Lord's death until he comes, let it remind us of all that he's done. Let it remind us of our only hope. Let, us, so, let it sober us up so that we care about how we live before you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if we've confessed and renounced our sins, there's good news. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death.